This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. You're listening to the Happy as a Mother podcast, and today we are welcoming Doula Sabia Wade to the podcast. Now, Sabia is here to discuss a really near and dear to my heart topic, and that is the topic of racism and privilege in birth work. Now, some of you might be wondering what that even means, why we're going there on the show, why we're talking about this. But in case you didn't know, women of color are three to four times more likely to die from childbirth than non-Hispanic white women. Three to four times more likely to die in childbirth than a white woman. And to me, when I started to read and hear and understand these stats, I could not wrap my mind around what the heck is going on. It is 2020, people. Women should not be dying in childbirth in this way. So I brought Sabia here to unpack this topic for us because I was so surprised to hear the reason why. Why is this happening? And I'll give you a little hint. It doesn't have to do with hereditary or, you know, any biological reason. It actually has a lot to do with implicit bias and our own prejudices that we are blind to and unaware of, and that it is affecting the care of women of color in our countries. So tune in. This is an incredibly important episode, and you can learn practical ways to help and to be an ally to women of color. Now, before diving into the interview, we are going to quickly read the review of the week. This iTunes review comes to us from E-M-D-E-J. Exceptional. As a first-time mama, I quickly realized how unprepared I was for everything postpartum. After healing mentally and physically, I was hungry for resources that gave mamas the grace to be wherever they were alongside information that was helpful and evidence-based. I am so thankful to have run across Erica's podcast. She brings her own experiences, asks thoughtful questions, and finds excellent experts to talk to. The episode on birth trauma was especially insightful. Thank you, Erica, for the space you've created for women to feel free in exploring all the facets that being a mama can bring. I applaud you from Michigan. Dive over the bridge sometimes so we can grab a cup of coffee, smiley face. I love that. Oh my goodness. I would absolutely love to meet with each of you face to face. I dream of days of having mummy groups and time where we can just connect and share in this universal experience of motherhood. So thank you for that invitation and thank you for that wonderful review. Now let's get to today's topic. Welcome to the Happy as a Mother podcast, where we are dedicated to helping you cope with the load of motherhood. I'm your host and registered psychotherapist, Erica Jossa. Let's work together in letting go of shame and guilt, accepting where we are in our journey, and moving towards becoming the women we want to be. We will hear from experts, learn practical tips, and listen in on honest conversations. 
Please note that the information shared in this podcast is for educational purposes only and should not replace the advice of your healthcare provider. Okay, let's dive in. Savia, thank you so much for joining us today. I've been waiting with great anticipation for this interview. I think that this is such an important topic that we're going to be covering today about uh, privilege, bias in, in labor and delivery with moms. So thank you for joining us. Absolutely. I was excited when I got your invitation. Like, I'm so curious, and I always kind of start the interview Trying to unpack a little bit about your story and how you got into like the advocacy work that you do and the doula work that you do. I see you're quite like active and uh, have lots of things on the go, quite a busy, mm-hmm. yeah. you know. So how can you break it down for me? Uh, how you got into this? Yes, this field? so I'll try to give you somewhat of a condensed version. Um, but so back in like 2013, 14 before I started doing doula work in 2015, I was in a medical field. I was working towards being a nurse. I was super, at the time I knew I wanted to be a nurse practitioner. I knew I wanted to work in labor and delivery, be a midwife, like that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I was really into babies, even though at that point, my actual nursing like history, I was a nursing assistant. I worked with really like, I mean, all types of people like, gunshot wounds and organ transplants and just really messed up things and but nothing really to do with labor and delivery Mm -hmm. so anyway um at the time I was working I'm from Jersey but I had moved to Philadelphia I was working for a hospital system there and I was getting really like this is probably maybe five years into me being a nursing assistant and I was just starting to kind of put some pieces together about the medical industry like simple things like I was working at the time on a unit that's like a step down ICU and I would Mm -hmm. see the nurses giving the patients medicine, but then I would see that they were getting terrible food. (laughs) So I was Mm. like, well, how are we going to make them better if we're giving them medicine, but not giving them quality food? Um, I also noticed different things like we would have, you know, these chronically and critically ill uh, patients only seeing a therapist once a week. And I was like, we need to, something's wrong here. So, mm-hmm. so I started learning about doulas, um, through in Philly, like community doulas in Philly. I was interested, but didn't really have the time to really like dive into it. So life happened and I decided to move to Massachusetts And when I moved to Massachusetts, I'm also a Sagittarius, so I just move whenever I feel like it. So so when I moved to Massachusetts, I was like, okay, I want to, before I even moved, I was like, I want to have something that's like meaningful. Like I want to have something that's new, that's different, that's exciting, that makes me feel like I'm making an actual impact on the world. So through some research, I found the Prison Birth Project. And Mm -hmm. I contacted them and I was like, hey, like, I would love to work with you. And they were like, we're not taking doulas right now. And I was like, what do you mean? So then then about like a couple of weeks later, I sent them um, that was on Facebook, our initial conversation. And then I sent them an email and they were like, oh, we're opening up um, for some volunteer doulas. And I was like, I want to be a part of y'all. And they were like, "Okay, let's do the interview process. I did that. Long story short, I ended up being. Um, a doula with the prison bird project for two years 
Hmm. And that's like, I can't even imagine what that work must have been like. Like, wow. Yeah. So I did that for two years and I specifically worked with incarcerated, formerly incarcerated and um, parents in substance abuse recovery. So I did Mm. that for two years. And of course, like it was a different approach to seeing birth as like, you know, this white picket fence and everyone's so excited and everything's so great. It was a it was like a crash course into this is what birth can look like when it's not being depicted as something so like marvelous, you know, (laughs) like on TV. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it really threw me right into um, really like activism and reproductive justice and understanding that what privilege was and racism and being marginalized and just all this, it just rocked my world Mm -hmm. (laughs) for for those two years. And ever since then, it's just been me and, and doula work and yeah, crazy. It just started in a really, really intense way. But it was a foundation for everything that I am now. So I'm grateful. Yeah. And it's so interesting because I like I found you through like some your Instagram page as Mm -hmm. the Black Doula on Instagram. Mm -hmm. And um, I was looking through and you do some workshops specifically talking about, you know, privilege and racism. And and like you said, some of the disparities between how um, women of color and women are like approached in the like hospital system and and Mm -hmm. birthing system and stuff. So I'm really excited to unpack some of that today. But also off the get go, just want to like kind of acknowledge how uncomfortable of a conversation this might be for someone like it's interesting I had Mm -hmm. like I was telling you earlier I had a bunch of interviews scheduled for today and I put a bunch of polls in my Facebook (laughs) stories about what questions people might have about the different interviews I had coming up with like you know the subjects and what Mm -hmm. they were and what people were interested and uh, they're like you know sex with their partner and like all these different different areas and then I'm talking about like privilege and racism and like you know marginalized populations and there's crickets in terms of yeah of, people are scared of to questions. have conversations so and I just want to acknowledge off the bat like this is a hard conversation for people to have with other people and I am so happy and excited that we're going there because I think it's necessary and I think that It's so, especially as providers, right? Like for me as a provider, for you as a provider and Mm -hmm. and walking people through that journey or any any other therapist or any other type of um, provider that might be tuning in as well to just be aware and be mindful. So um, yeah, as hard of conversations as these might be to have with other people, I'm really excited that we're having them. Not that I think ours is going to be uncomfortable, yeah. but I'm just saying the <laughs> yeah. topics in general can be polarizing or can mm-hmm. be, um, get people's defenses up or can, you know, absolutely, and we're going to get into it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just like lack of understanding and lack of, um, willingness to hear one another. And there's just so much that can come with conversations like these. But as I said, we're here to show up and I'm so excited about it. And I've really been anticipating uh, having this conversation with you. Same here. Okay. So where do we start? Why don't we start with the concept of privilege? Cause you talked about being in this, you know, crash course in terms of, um, your volunteer work. 
mm-hmm. and really getting to see what privilege looked like. So can we unpack this concept of privilege, particularly white privilege, because mm-hmm. most of the white people that I speak with do not understand that being white comes with privilege and what that means. Yeah. Um, so let's let's chat it through. Yeah, so privilege on its, on a very basic level is a special advantage, um, a special benefit that a person has. So that can be white privilege. It can be um, heterosexual privilege. It can be basically it's like what the world or I'm in the U.S. I know you're in Canada, right? Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, pr- privilege across the across the whole world is what is the actual culture that you live in based on, right? So in the U.S. specifically, um, most things are based off of, or like the level of acceptance is based off of whiteness. So if you're a white person, you have that privilege because the world is based off of you. If you're heterosexual, you're also the majority. So the world is based off of you. Um, So it's basically a special advantage that you're, you're receiving for whatever reasons. And it's interesting because I was actually watching a documentary on white privilege on Netflix that recently came out, like a Mm -hmm. Chelsea Handler documentary. Mm -hmm. And and she's like sitting with these different communities. um, Like, I don't even know where she was located, somewhere in the States. And talking about privilege and like all of the minorities and people she was sitting with was like, yeah, like like there's this acknowledgement and they can like call it out and see it for what it is and whatever. And then she went to some like white event happening in some like really white kind of like rural area or wherever she was. And, uh, and she's talking about, do you know what it means to have white privilege? And they're like, no, like, I don't think I'm privileged. Like I, you know, and there's just like such a lack of understanding and awareness of what white privilege actually is and what it looks like. You know, like to to have privilege doesn't mean to live in like luxury. Mm-hmm. Like, can we break down practically what that can look like so people can understand? Mm-hmm. So, white privilege, and we're gonna, I'm going to talk about it in birthy terms because that's kind of my whole thing. Yeah, um, okay. we talk about the the maternal mortality rates for Black birthing people. We know that in the U.S. that it is that it is more likely three to four times more likely for a black birthing person to die. Right. So three to four times more likely, more likely. Yeah. More likely than a white birthing person. Wow. So the reasoning, so what they did, and I'll give you a condensed version, but throughout the last, you know, however many years they've done all types of testing. Cause they were like, well, maybe it's socioeconomic status, maybe it's access to healthcare, Maybe it's, you know, education level. Maybe it's all of these things that are contributing to these terrible disparities. Yeah. So after some research, after many tests, after all these amazing things, these programs, they realized that the reason for this was racism and discrimination in the system. Right. It was like there's nothing else that's at play, just racism and discrimination in the system. So when we talk about white privilege, that is a privilege to be safe right? To have a better outcome, to have a better experience just because you were born white. Mm, <laughs> like, yeah. And that's, and that's what that is. So that's an example of white privilege. But when we think about it on a larger scale and specifically talking about in the U.S., because I live in the U.S., even though I know that other places can resonate with what I'm saying, 
Um, when we talk about any type of system, when we talk about the criminal justice system, we know that Black people are at a disadvantage. Black and brown people are at a disadvantage. When we talk about the education system, Black and brown people are at a disadvantage. So when you look at these major systems that have been built in you know, all of where we live, I can pretty much guarantee that Black and brown people are going to be the disadvantage. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so yeah. that's just an example of how white privilege works. It's like, as you're speaking about that, it's like bringing to my memory, um, like, I think it was like Serena Williams and Beyonce spoke out about their Mm -hmm. like labor and delivery experience. And I can't Mm -hmm. remember the exact details, but like, what is it that is like, how is the prejudice and racism showing up in the birthing experience that it's having, like, it's having that effect? Like, it's mind boggling to me. Yeah. So I think one of the things we have to talk about, um, just to kind of get to somewhat of the root of this is implicit bias, right? So we've, people have probably heard of the term implicit bias. Um, There's also explicit bias. And the difference is explicit bias is basically direct racism. So it's like a person who knows, I don't like black people. I don't like brown people. This is what, you know, these negative thoughts I have of them. But implicit bias is more troubling because someone who has implicit bias may not realize the bias that they're putting on black and brown people. Hmm. Right. So that may be the person that says, I love black and brown people. That may be the physician. Let's say it's a physician. This is the person that says, I love black and brown people. But when you look into the actual, um, their actual outcomes of their births, you still see that maybe a white person had the same issues as a black person, but there was a better outcome for the white person. Maybe the white person received um, more, you know, options for medication, or maybe they received more education or, you know, whatever that uh, benefited their outcome was in place versus a black birthing person. And so what happens is a lot of times in these medical systems, we have practitioners, whether they're, you know, physicians, nurses, or whoever, who just are not aware of um, the bias that they're placing on an individual, Right. Mm. So that's more problematic than someone who's outwardly racist. Right. Right. (laughs) Because if you're outwardly racist, I know not to deal with you. I know that we're not going to work together, that you're not going to do what you need to do for me and you're not going to listen to me. But if you're masking yourself, maybe unintentionally as a person who cares about me, who understands the the issues that I face as a black woman and I go to you with my full trust and you're not realizing the bias that you're placing on me, then that's going to be more problematic because I'm not going to be aware of it. Right. And, it, and and it's not even like what I'm hearing is that it's not even that it's only hidden from you, but it's also like not in the consciousness of the provider. Like, exactly. It's, it's like sort of this conditioned behavior or something. Would you say those biases come from like family and like society, like shaped by their, their environment that they're in and all that. Yeah. Absolutely. I think, you know, even as, you know, I think as humans, right. No matter what race you are, no matter what gender, no matter any of that, you have bias. Mm. You just, you just do. Right. But it takes, it's a conscious decision to be aware of that bias. (laughs) Right. And, and change it to something else. So I think it's really hard sometimes for humans in general to accept that they have bias because people feel that if they recognize that they're biased, that maybe they're a bad person or they made bad choices or, you know, they're racist or this, that, and the other. But we have to be aware of that. These are learned behaviors, right? right? So if we look onto media, for example, or if you look at movies, I know for myself being a, a black woman, 
when I've seen like some movies out in theaters, they depict black women as either aggressive mm. or they're always on a, like if there's like a professional, like let's say it's like a law office that's in the movie. I always see the, the black woman as like a secretary, not a lawyer. Mm. Right. Or we see these, like these stories that are, um, for example, like I think it was like what movie was it? I don't know if it was radio or whatever, but they depict like black people as just like low income, poor, not educated, and then the white people have to come and save us. Yeah. And then we become like these better people. So when we think about just the the imagery that we see, the the visuals that we see, the things that we learn just from the things that are being pushed at us every day, yeah. We create bias based off of that and that translates into the medical system. Yeah. Yeah. Like it makes me think about like a study or something that I was uh, reading or learning about. I, I listen to a lot of audiobooks and podcasts mm-hmm. and things. So I'm losing the source right now in my mind. But talking about um, like these young black girls and there was like black dolls and white dolls and talking about, you know, good versus bad and whatever. Yep. And even the little black girls chose the black dolls as being like the bad you know, representation mm-hmm. of bad in, in that situation. And, yeah, and that's like a form of colorism. Yeah. Right? Like that's a form of me being, so I, I know people can't see me right now, but <laughs> I am a dark skinned black woman. I love being dark skinned, right? Because I was lucky to be around people that celebrated darkness. Yeah. You know, that celebrated my melanin, celebrated my brown chocolate skin, yeah. but there's, Usually visually on TV, we don't see that. We don't see that in books. We don't see that around us where people are celebrating different um, colors, like deeper hues, basically. Right. And you even see that all around the world in different cultures and Asian cultures. It's the same thing. If someone is Asian, but they're of of a darker skin tone, they have more problems than someone of a lighter skin tone. And when we talk about white privilege, that's based off of whiteness being the main source of what we think is right. That's why our communities are based off of. Yeah. It's, it's such an interesting conversation to me. And honestly, um, not one that I really was exposed much to until like, you know, my like twenties and beyond. Um, Mm -hmm. my husband is from West Africa and Mm -hmm. he's quite dark skinned and my boys are mixed. Um, I've got three, freaking adorable boys and not you know <laughs> not that, that okay clearly biased with that one but yeah. um <laughs> but like in just in my willingness to open my mind up and really um take in you know my husband's experience or my sister-in-law's by simply diversifying my friend group and my family and the type of people you know that I spend my time with and um expanding myself a little bit, allowing Mm -hmm. myself to just be exposed to and hear other people's experiences. And like growing up, I never would have known that like, you know, people are discriminated against for being darker skin versus even like lighter skin black people, you know, like Mm -hmm. how there's even within races, there are people who discriminate against skin tones and things like that. So Mm -hmm. yeah, it's really been, um, interesting journey to like learn about, but also something I feel like I take very seriously now because the very fact that I got to walk around and not have to deal with any of these things speaks to privilege in itself, you know? Yeah, like, even the, the ability to be blind, right? Exactly. Is like, that's a privilege. And we talk about that a lot, like with the duelists that I train, 
we talk about, you know, your ability to be unaware until your 20s, until, you know, a lot of my, a lot of my doulas are, you know, they have a very similar story yeah. where maybe they were exposed to learning about privilege and racism because they connected to a person of color, whether it's friends or a relationship or, you know, whatever it was, and it opened their eyes to what's going on. But even that conversation, they realized like, oh, it must be, I'm, I'm privileged. I can walk around just being blind to all of these things. Yeah. And it took them to really come out of their shell, right, to come out of it to see what other people are facing on a daily basis. Yeah. Yeah. And, and when we the... talk about people being uncomfortable with the conversation, yeah. I'm like, recognize the privilege of discomfort because me being a, a Black queer person, I never, like, I racism and privilege all it has always been a topic right <laughs> like totally even if I didn't want it to be <laughs> it's you funny. know like yeah. even if I was like in especially when I worked in corporate spaces it was like oh I'm just coming in I want to do my job like everyone else and and then I would have different experiences where I'm like oh this is happening because I'm black wow yeah. <laughs> like right like you know right. it's like it's nothing that I can I can't ignore it because I've been in spaces when I just walk outside or I'm at the, you know, local Walmart that someone's uncomfortable and I'm like, I'm not even doing anything. I'm just existing. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. And like, it's very difficult. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in all honesty, we are so blind to that. Like my husband, he's like six, four, Mm -hmm. big dark skin guy. Right. And, like, to me, he's, like, a teddy bear. <laughs> like, to me, like, it's my yeah. husband. Um, but he'll, like, walk in and with a hoodie into, like, a store at nighttime to get something. And, like, they'll page security over the the headset mm-hmm. or, like, whatever. I'm, like, are you kidding me? Like, are you kidding mm-hmm. me? And I get mm-hmm. so angry for him. To him, he's just, like, used to – this has been his experience. Like, and so – Yes, it like that that discomfort. I hear what you're saying. It's like it's uncomfortable for white people because you know what? We've got to turn around and we've got to face ourselves. We've got to deal with our exactly. crap because having these conversations means that you've got to like turn towards yourself and think about the comments that you have made that have maybe been offensive, which we've all said just out of ignorance or, mm-hmm. you know, just we start to have to evaluate our own behavior and our actions and that I think that's really probably the discomfort um and also yeah. like it's a really polarizing topic like yeah and I think yeah. also we get into like sometimes and I see all the time whether it's my students or people that are just you know in my world where I see that that knowledge of oh wow I have this privilege and while wow, this privilege has allowed me to do whatever it is that I've done and it becomes like a, a guilt right so then we get into this like white guilt yeah. Like, oh, I feel so bad. Yeah. Because I was born white. Yeah. And like, <laughs> you know, yeah. so it starts getting into that. And then we start really getting into like white tears. So it's like, oh, I'm I so know. sad about this. Yeah. And I'm like, there's nothing wrong with you having privilege. <laughs> like, it really isn't, you know? Like, I can't be mad at you because you were born white. That's something I can't do. Like, you had no choice in that. We right. had no, whatever. Just like I was born black. I don't know. It just happens. But, the biggest thing is like once you recognize the privilege is doing something with it. You yeah. know, that having privilege is not bad. It's when you misuse it, that's the problem. Yeah. So it's having the conversation, learning and being aware of what your privilege is allows you to start having the conversation with, you know, people that may not have that privilege around how can I use my privilege 
to make this mission even better. Yeah. And that's what the conversation has to be versus like, oh, I feel bad because I'm white. It's like, we can't do anything about that. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, that's, that's not what we can control. Unless yeah. you're like Rachel Dazzo, you want to like change herself, whatever. Right, but, right, <laughs> but, totally. You know, realistically, it's about what can I do with this privilege yeah. to help other people that is going to help us move forward and to help us, you know, gain equality and help us to, um, ultimately have reproductive justice, which is my whole thing. So. Yeah. Well, and, and part of the reason, like, I really felt like this was an important conversation to have is like, so I was watching that documentary, um, like Chelsea Handler of all the people, mm-hmm. it was like the most random documentary, but like also good for her, I guess, for, um, stepping out in that way. But, um, mm-hmm. And, and she was interviewing, like, the founders of the Black Lives Matter movement. And she was like, okay, like, this is this was like a whole Black Lives Matter versus All Lives Matter versus, you know, Blue Lives Matter and, like, all, all the mm-hmm. things that came from that. And, the, and in that, they were talking about the white tears. Like, it's not our job as women of color or like, you know, people of color to go around educating the oppressors about the way that they oppressed us just to console them when they cry and feel guilty about it. Mm -hmm. Right. And I was like, Oh shoot. Like, (laughs) you know, like just like, wow. And and it has to be like, true. Like I, yeah. And I definitely like, even at my workshop. So my in-person workshop that I do right now is my racism and privilege and birth work um, workshop. And, and so one of the things that we do in that workshop is that it's open to everyone. So I usually have people of all different, you know, I have people of color, I have white people, we're all there mixed together because yeah. we didn't have necessary conversations. So I want everyone to be present. And one of the things that we do, we talk about white silence. So we talk about white silence, which is basically um, on a, I guess a simple explanation is when a white person doesn't speak up, right? So they see something wrong. um, They see something not, you know, not being fair, whatever it is. And they decide like, I'm not going to necessarily be part of the problem by, you know, being, being negative, but I'm just not going to say anything. Yeah. Right. (laughs) So we talk about white silence and, and what that means. And then we also, and I asked them, you know, to the white people in the room, can you give us an example of when you were silent? Yeah. And so we go around the room and people give examples. And some of the examples may be, you know, they saw something at work and they didn't speak up. Or maybe there was a really negative conversation and maybe someone was using like really negative, you know, slurs during a family dinner and they didn't say anything. Yeah. Or, you know, like it's all these different examples. And one of the things that I do, because of course people feel bad. They're like, man, I messed up. <laughs> like I should have said something. Yeah. I feel guilty. Yeah. I want to cry about it whatever. But then I'm like, you know what, before we start getting into that space, people of color in a room, can you give them feedback on what you have liked them to do? Yeah. Right. What would you have liked them to do? What would you have liked to have saw or heard? Or what do you think would have been, would have been better if you were in that situation and then give feedback. And for me, that's what's necessary. Right. Mm-hmm. Like we don't need to sit into this guilty, like, you know, shame pool of storm. Like, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. it's not going to, it's not going to help us get better. But if we can have these conversations, right, because a part of reproductive justice is you have to cross identities and have necessary conversations. Yeah. So for me, I don't feel like personally that 
we're going to have any movement on the maternal mortality rates or the infant mortality rates or all these different systems that black and white, black and brown people are at a disadvantage if we don't have the conversation together. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We need to have white people willing to use their privilege yeah. to open doors, to be in spaces, to have conversations that I wouldn't have access to. Right. So we have to have that feedback and we have to open up the discussion. And it's hard because people, you know, they get offended and people are really, you know, wild up and it's a lot of feelings, but we have to come to some type of neutral space so mm-hmm. that we can hear each other and we can fix the problem. Yeah. Because if we keep going against each other, we're just causing more separation and no one's learning anything. hundred percent. Mealtime with kids can be stressful, but with Factors Delicious ready-to-eat meals, it can be a lot easier. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to eat in just two minutes. No worrying about ingredients and nutrition, no prep, no mess, and no cooking while wrangling toddlers. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or vegan and veggie. Also discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Factor can even be tailored to your schedule. Customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Take the stress out of meals with Factor. Head to factormeals.com slash momwell50 and use code momwell50 to get 50% off your first box. Want to get smarter about your health but feel overwhelmed trying to separate fact from fiction? We hear a lot about gut health, microbiomes, and other nutrition topics, but taking the time to research these is exhausting, and there's a lot of misinformation out there. The Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast makes it so much easier to get the information you need. With the help of world-leading scientists, the podcast gives you research-based information so you can make informed choices for yourself without pressure and guilt. People are loving Zoe Science and Nutrition. Listener Stephanie's Apple Review says the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast is a life-changing, science-based, myth-busting podcast. That's a must-listen for anyone who eats food and wants to understand how it affects their body. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast, you can join Stephanie and millions of others accessing quality information about their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. One of the most relentless mental loads is being the juggler of medical appointments. Researching doctors, reading reviews, making phone calls to book appointments, it's a lot of stress when you're already juggling so much invisible labor. That's what makes ZocDoc great for moms. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare hundreds of types of highly rated in-network doctors, including mental health providers, and instantly book appointments with them online. ZocDoc has doctors of all specialties, including therapists, psychiatrists, and psychologists with verified patient reviews so you can make sure they check all your boxes. You can find mental health providers who offer in-person appointments, virtual consults, or both, whatever works for you. The typical wait time to see a mental health provider booked on ZocDoc is just four days. Sometimes you can even book same-day appointments. Make juggling appointments easier with ZocDoc. 
Go to ZocDoc.com slash MomWell and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated therapist, psychiatrist, or psychologist today. That's zocdoccom slash MomWell. ZocDoc.com slash MomWell. In thinking about this more and in learning about it, uh, in I think it was a documentary again, I keep referencing it, mm-hmm. I said to like white people have these conversations with your other white friends without your black friend in the room like mm-hmm. go there have the conversations call them out talk about privilege like help them understand hash it out without you know the friend who might be like offended like remove the pressure and just like hash it out and i actually like not that i've like taken this on as like my mission because like you mm-hmm. know but i i very strongly believe that I need to use my voice in in this way um and and I was in an interesting conversation with a colleague the other day and it got pretty intense and they were not really enjoying my feedback and I was still (laughs) like and it it wasn't like a you know you need to like check your behavior type of feedback but it was just like a this is what white privilege is and it's like oh you feel it's actually kind of what (laughs) what we just did here it's like oh you feel uncomfortable about this conversation that's because like it's a privilege to feel uncomfortable yeah. about <laughs> yeah. it like you know and exactly. it was essentially kind of like what we just discussed because exactly like to to avoid and to not think about and to feel discomfort and to like decide whether this wants to be something you want to think about or talk about in itself speaks to the privilege right speaks to the problem yeah so. and it also really comes into like in order for change to happen and i mean just as humans right if you want to be able to excel to another level of your career or your life or whatever that's important to you, there becomes a stage of like discomfort because growth means there's going to be something that's uncomfortable. Right. Right. Like that's just how life is. So one thing that white people have to realize is that it is uncomfortable to have these conversations and it's going to be uncomfortable to grow. Right. Like you're going to push yourself in very uncomfortable spaces. Maybe you're having conversations with your colleagues. Maybe you're correcting your family on something that they're saying Maybe you're making choices not to even be friends with someone anymore because they're obviously not on the same page as you. Right. But that discomfort is only a small percentage of what black and brown people face on a regular basis. Yeah. And like, and if you're going to be with it, if you really want to make change, if you really want to be, be the example of like what we all need to be so in order to elevate this whole like world, basically, yeah, <laughs> you have to be willing to be uncomfortable. Yeah. You just do. Mm-hmm. And I and, and I think some people, like a lot of people, even in my classes, they're like, you know, well, I don't know. My family is super Southern and they don't, you know, they don't like black people <laughs> or like, yeah. you know, my boss has said some really, you know, uncomfortable things that were just really rude. And I'm like, well, how, how much are you willing to sacrifice? Yeah. Like, cause you can either align with that kind of stuff, which is what white silence comes into place right but then if you're going to align with that you can't tell me that you're you're with me right because you're you're not (laughs) right like if you're going to be okay with your family saying things that are out of place and rude and and negative and inaccurate but then tell me that you're my friend and you support me yeah i don't think so 
(laughs) So if you're going to be about it, you have to be about it 24 seven because I'm about my blackness 24 seven because I have no choice. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. And you know, like that's when, like, I guess just my awareness to the situation, um, like it came in and like this whole, my eyes were open was when it's like, this is my husband. Like these are my kids you're talking about. So help me Mm -hmm. somebody disrespect my family. Like, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't think so. You know, like this isn't okay. Yeah. I can only imagine too, like what it, what it, like the eye opening experiences of having black children. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, and, and then with all of like the news partner. and the police shootings and like all mm-hmm. the black men and, you know, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And thank God, you know, Canada is a little bit of a different, like, like I think about my, like just my, my son's. Black, mm-hmm. white, whatever. Like my sons, I think about them going out and getting pulled over by a cop. And my husband's like, well, here's the protocol for when you get pulled over by a police officer. Like, And I'm just like, how? Yeah. How is this? This isn't okay. You know, it's not yeah. okay. And it's, it's a preparation for us that starts like when we're young, you know, yeah. like when you're, and it's like one of the things that I, I forgot what I was, I don't know where it came from, right? Because I was to a lot of podcasts, read a lot of books as well. Yeah, yeah. But like, um, they were talking about, how like racism in children and how like it how it forms or whatever but basically they were saying how black children for the most part right like i'm not going to say that we don't have like people telling us that white people are bad but like racism for black for black children doesn't start from the very beginning like we're kind of blindsided we're like oh we're all children right how kids are yeah we're all children everything is great but then as you get older you realize that people look at you a different way because you're black Right. Mm, mm-hmm. And then so you kind of learn racism about racism because you start to ask questions like, well, how come I was treated this way? Or how come this person doesn't like me? And you start to put the you know, I've had I remember being a child and putting those things together like, oh, it's because right. I'm black. Mm-hmm. Right. And then you see like also you may see someone's parents of, you know, your friend treat you differently. And you're like, why? Oh, because I'm black. So you realize that yeah. then. But they were like the thing that they were saying about white children is that, of course, they start off um kind of not knowing what racism is, but then they learn it from like the opposite side of it. <laughs> so mm. maybe they're learning about how being white is a privilege and what they get to get away with mm. as a child because they're white. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Or like mm-hmm. maybe their parents or grandparents or whoever are saying racial slurs or teaching them about blackness in a negative way. Right. So yeah. then they start to be, because I've, I've heard so many times, and I don't know if your kids have experienced this, where my friends that have kids, they're like, you know, my kid was on the playground and they're black and this white, you know, kid was calling them the N-word. Mm. And I'm like, how does this seven-year-old know the N-word? <laughs> like, right? right. How does he know that that is something that's derogatory and that should be used, you know, towards a black person? Like, how do they know that? And then the black kid is like, why are you calling me this? Like, yeah. what happened? Yeah. So it was just like, it's just really yeah. crazy how that stuff works. And and having children and you being, you know, a white mom to these mixed children, I can just, I don't know, I can just imagine. <laughs> like, well, yeah. And it's its really, um, like, I, for one, am going to, obviously, within my own family, like, model for them, like, unconditional mm-hmm. acceptance and, and treating them and all of that. But then also, like, I, I feel a responsibility to with my white friends, you know, it's like, I don't need to go and be talking to all of my like black friends and people of color in my life about this issue. Like I need to be talking to my white friends about this issue because that's how this is being like perpetuated, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so 
yeah, like I just feel like a responsibility, I guess you could, you could say, but yeah. yeah. And it's a good one. If you feel it and you're willing to be active, it's a good move. And I think, I think also too, another thing that's really interesting as a black person, and I try to tell white people to be careful about this is like a lot of times that, and I think people mean to do it out of, um, camaraderie or to learn or whatever it is Mm -hmm. but I'll have like people contact me about you know some like racist issue that happened maybe it was a shooting or maybe another uh, black birthing person died for no reason in birth and then they send me the article or they send me you know whatever link or podcast and they're like what do you think about this and I'm like why are you sending this yeah, to me? Yeah, yeah. Like, do you not understand that this is traumatizing for me? Right. Like, And it's like, you don't need another <laughs> reminder of what you're facing every single day. Yeah. Right? And, yeah, and I'm like, I yeah. don't need you to ask me how I feel, but I feel terrible about this. I yeah. feel like my my life is, you know, all, there's, my life is always at stake. Like, there's something always going on, whether yeah. it's I walk outside and someone shoots me because I got pulled over or because I decided to have a baby and, you know, things happen. And I'm like, why don't you send this to your white friends? Right. Like, <laughs> like yeah. maybe this could be a nice education and like some education for them as to what's going on in the black community and the brown yeah. community and what we need to do to step in to help. Yeah. But asking me is not. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Like it's what? It's not going to do anything. Yeah. I know that this happens. Yeah. Totally. So that's another yeah. thing we have to just step away from. Yeah. And I know that like in, in conversations with my husband, like he, he doesn't even want to keep up with that news anymore. Like, you know, it's like not Same. a thing. Like he doesn't mm-hmm. go and seek it out. Okay. So if I think back to the beginning of our interview and we were talking about sort of the the differences in outcomes for women and like women in like labor and delivery. What are some ways, like, like speak to me as like a mental health professional or -hmm. speak to the other like doulas or other people, like professionals out there or whoever, what are some ways that we can help? Is it like helping women to advocate for themselves? Is it advocating on their behalf? Like what, what are some action steps? Like, what do we, what can we do about that? Yeah. So I think there's several things, right? Like, I think the main thing that if you're, a practitioner, if you are a doula, if you're a mental health, you know, if you're a therapist, all these different things. Um, I think the first thing is that you should, if you are white, you should definitely create some type of list of like people of color that are in your field. Um, I think that is really important for people of color. If you have a client to be able to reference someone who looks like them, who has a shared experience. And they may still choose to work with you, which is fine. But I think we have to give them that option, right? Make it presentable. Um, Another thing that needs to be had is that there needs to be education. We need to be able to, as a practitioner, it is your job to educate yourself about what's going on in the different lives of people that you serve. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to serve people of color, you should be aware of what they're facing and what they need from you, right? It doesn't matter if you're the same race or if you're the same whatever, just actually understanding what they're going through. Yeah. And also not ask POCs to educate you, especially if there's no exchange, right? Like yeah. <laughs> I definitely teach about racism and privilege, but people have to pay for a ticket to understand that what I'm doing is labor. Right. Right. Like I'm doing a lot of labor to put these, these trainings together, to have these conversations, to know that someone's probably going to say something that's offensive to me. And I'm going to have to correct them yeah. in, the, in, the, in the way of a teacher, yeah. right? 
So it's a lot of work. So you have to be aware of your accountability to do your own work and to continue to do the work. Mm-hmm. One class is not enough. Yeah. <laughs> like It needs to be a continuance of this work. Um, another thing is being aware of giving opportunities to other practitioners of color so they can also serve their communities, um, helping them to create sustainable businesses mm-hmm. so they can serve their communities. Um, I think what we're focusing right now, which I obviously is one of my focuses, are the outcomes for people of color. But one of the things we're not having enough conversation about is how having a, a person of color helping another person of color increases the experience mm-hmm. by so much, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It, it definitely improves the outcome by so much. <laughs> like, yeah. So we have to think about not only just a client that uh, the client of color that we may be, um, you know, helping and assisting, but also the practitioners. Yeah. And how do we make it better for people to build businesses to give these services to people of color at affordable rates too? Yeah. Yeah. Right. So we have to think about this systemically. Like, how do we, as people, and especially how do white people make it so that the system can run smoother, so that People of color who need assistance through pregnancy or through life or through whatever may be going on with them can get help, as well as practitioners of color are able to build sustainable businesses mm-hmm. so they can help their communities. Because right now we see a lot of, you know, the white savior complex. Oh, I'm coming into this community and I'm going to help and I'm going to be the change. And sometimes you don't see any change. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Because if you're coming in as a white person that's not consulting the community, of color and saying, Hey, what do you need? Let me be that person to help bring this to you. If you want me to, (laughs) like what we're, what we're seeing is like people just coming and saying, I know how to help you. Yeah. We'll just put this in place because you need this and you need that. And that's not actually what we need. Yeah. So we have to have conversations within our communities. And like I said, I said, I've said this before and I continue to say this when I have, I also, you know, on my Instagram or on my websites or whatever, I'll have, you know, a white person say, well, what should I do for my community? And I'm like, well, where do you live? And they're like, I live, I mean, sometimes they live in Canada. And I'm like, well, I don't live in Canada. So I think you should ask the community of color there. Right. (laughs) Because we're not one, I am not the representation of everyone of color. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I can't tell you what someone needs in Canada. I can't tell you what someone needs over there because I may not know I know general things yeah but it's your responsibility to make yourself uncomfortable and say like reach out to your community of color and say how can I help you and be an accomplice to your community yeah and I think it's your like, responsibility to do that it's so it's so important like what you're saying is like yes you can you can lean on your friends who are of color or black or brown or whoever your you know friend group is to help open your eyes and to help educate you a little bit, like person of color or whatever, to educate you. But it's like, they're not going to do your work for you, right? Like you mm-hmm. have to do your work. You have to understand and and like even understand some of the history. Like th- there's such a poor job here, or maybe like I just didn't listen in school, but no, I, I did. I was a pretty good <laughs> listener and they really didn't go over any like black history or anything like that. So just even understanding oppression and like where privilege comes from or Mm -hmm. why it's important for black women to have a, like a black breastfeeding week separate from just regular breastfeeding week. Like 
these types of things that are so rooted in just understanding the history, right? But it's not going to be your Black friend's job to educate you on these things. I'm like, thank God for my husband being patient. because He he has been the one that's educated me a lot on this, but like he like plants the seed. And then I do a lot of like my, Oh my gosh, like I'm good. Mm -hmm. I have to go and understand this. Like, you know? Um, Yeah. So it's our job as white people, as white practitioners, as white friends, as white spouses, as white, you know, Mm -hmm. to do the work, to, seek out the information to understand. Yeah, and you have to be committed to it. Like, you have to be committed to doing the work. You have to understand that it's going to make you uncomfortable. It is going to make you feel sad sometimes. And it's okay to have those feelings. Yeah. But it's it's not okay to push those feelings onto the people that are being affected by privilege. Right, yeah. (laughs) Like, you can have those feelings and talk about that within your groups, but... To put that feeling onto the people of color or to whatever communities are being affected kind of makes it reverse where now we're taking care of you. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, that's not what I'm here for. Yeah. Like, And there's particular spaces. Like I've created my workshops so that people can have those moments to have those feelings. Mm-hmm. But when it really comes to the real world, we can't expect for marginalized groups to absorb that. Yeah. We're already doing enough work. We're already, it's already hard enough to exist sometimes. Yeah. (laughs) So so you have to do that work for yourself. I think about an experience that I had. So I've been to um, like West West Africa, a couple of places in Africa on a couple of occasions with my husband and his family. And um, they're from Benin. And Benin is like one of the biggest ports on the West Coast for slavery back in the Mm -hmm. day and so all of like the touristy things to do there which are not very touristy but all of like the things that you do when you're a tourist there are historical sites and the history of Benin is of the most gut-wrenching history you know that Mm -hmm. I was completely ignorant and oblivious to this naive, privileged young white girl going on a vacation somewhere tropical, going on this tour of the history of this country. And like, I can still feel the pain in my tummy just thinking about how gut-wrenching the monuments are and the things, the information and the history, right? Yeah. So, and I think you're even making me think about just like, um, so one of the things that I see that people don't kind of, realize and especially in like in the birth world and just different communities and whatever that we do but (laughs) one of the things I see for example is when people talk about black birthing people not breastfeeding as much right and I think there's been a lot of conversation about that and people are sometimes saying it in a negative way Mm. without really understanding the history yeah right like understanding how black bodies were used to nourish white children Mm -hmm. And that we had no um, sovereignty over our bodies mm-hmm. and how that affects us even to this day. Yeah. And it's like, and if you don't know that, because I've actually seen that in doula trainings, um, big organizations where they have this very biased opinion on black people and breastfeeding and how we don't, we don't have enough information and we don't know what to do. And it's, it's like a really negative light, mm. but having no actual context of our history. Right. And, and what we're facing and why that exists. Yeah. Yeah. I just learned that recently with Black Breastfeeding Week was, I think, a few months ago. Mm-hmm. 
And I was like, oh my gosh, can't even get to Black Breastfeeding Week. They're like, oh my gosh, why is there Black Breastfeeding Week? It's like, are you serious? I know. And it's <laughs> like, if you just like, it, it, instead of like asking the question to the, to the like person of color who's posting about it, just Google it. Like, just do your own exactly. research. Because <laughs> like, you know, like inform yourself. Um, like, I understand like it's hard and it's difficult and it's uncomfortable. But like you said, and I think it's a really valid point is like, you don't have the luxury of not having to have these conversations like this is yeah. your life and it is you know all day every day yeah and it's yes it's uncomfortable but you know what like learn about it because it's going to be good for you and your growth and it's also going to expand your understanding and like all mm-hmm. the things just elevates and yeah. you know joins us together in a different way so as we think and I've of, often yeah. I've often also had the like thought process like I've sat and kind of meditated like what would it feel like to not like like to be white and not be feel unsafe most of the time yeah <laughs> like I don't even know what that would feel like because my just my general everyday things even if I don't necessarily feel like I'm not safe, the people around me don't feel safe, Yeah, you know? And I'm like, what would that feel like to just be able to navigate the world and not think about it? Mm-hmm. I can't even imagine. I don't even know what that looks like because every second of the day I have to think about, do I feel unsafe or if the people around me feel unsafe? Or are they worried about something? Or are they concerned? Or are they assuming that I'm a certain type of person? Are they assuming, you know, are these microaggressions going to be at play? And then not only that, but I have to worry about my clients, right? And the things that they're facing. Yeah. And then I have to worry about the duels that I train and the things that they're realizing there and their minds being blown and the anger that they're holding. And, yeah. you know, it's just, it's a, it's a lot. It is a lot. It is a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was having a conversation with somebody about microaggressions the other day and like, they just couldn't wrap their mind around it. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, okay, it's a thing, you know, and you need, you need to pay attention. Yeah, and, it's something like, that too, and it's something like you, if you're a white person, so I'll just give you an example. So I have um, a white doula friend, super nice lady. We are, she's cool. She's nice. And she was telling me that at this particular hospital, which I've gotten a lot of complaints about from um, people of color, that, she was like, you know, I love going to that hospital. She's like, I'm there all the time. And I've never seen any racist behavior. I've never seen anything going on. And I was like, oh, well, maybe like, you know, there could be some microaggressions going on. That's what I've, you know, heard from other people of color. And she was like, I've never seen that. Yeah. So I was like, mind you, this lady is white, blonde hair, blue eyes. Right, and I was right. like, um, do you know what that would look like? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Do you know yeah. what a microaggression towards a black or per- black or brown person looks like for you to be able to even say that they don't exist? Yeah. So she thought about it and she was like, "You're right." Yeah. You know, she was like, "I wouldn't know because that's not my experience." And she was like, "When I go in there, I feel safe. I feel like everyone respects me. I feel like, you know, I'm in everything's fine." She was like, "But I, I've never thought about like just because I don't see it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist." Right. So can we break right, down for those so, who are listening who like might mm-hmm. not know what a microaggression is? Can we break down what that looks like a little bit? Yeah. So a microaggression, I'm trying to think of like a way to just define it. Um, <laughs> but a microaggression is something that maybe is not like outwardly racist. Uh-huh. 
um, but can take place. So I'll give you one example. I had a doula who was working for a hospital system. She was a volunteer doula and she was a white doula. And most of the clients that come into the hospital system are white. And she was saying that people, you know, people get epidurals and, you know, the anesthesiologist comes in and asks you a few questions about your health and then proceeds to, you know, have the procedure. And she told me that she quickly realized that this particular anesthesiologist would ask people of color more questions than his white patients. Really? And she was like, he would ask questions about drug use. Or ask questions that were like, not like, oh, do you happen to have high blood pressure? Like, so do you use drugs? You know, like, do you do do this? And she was like, wait, what? Hmm. You know? Mm -hmm. And so, Mm -hmm. of course, for that person of color who maybe have never had an epidural before in their life, they don't even know that this is extra, Right. right? They don't even know that these questions are not part of the norm. But she was sitting there and she was like, okay. This is not, I don't, this is like, this one question has not been asked to the white people that I've worked with. That's, yeah. So clearly you're already having some type of thought about what this person is because of the way that they present. Like because of the color of their skin being different than yours. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, I can't. It's insane. It happens a lot in hospital systems and just, you know, medical, in medical spaces where there's an assumption of, um, even for me, right? So I've had like surgery because I had a fibroid, which is a whole nother issue for black black people. Okay. But <laughs> but I remember my the when I realized that something was wrong with me, I went to the, to the doctor. Like I went to urgent care on a Monday. I had a white provider physician. He was like, "You you have kidney stones," and I was like, "I definitely don't have kidney stones." Like <laughs> like I don't. Yeah. He didn't even like palpate anything. Nothing. Then that Wednesday, so two days later, I went back to um, an emergency room. Again, nothing. Like, they were just like, oh, maybe you have gallstones. Sent me some, give me some medicine. And and I left. Again, no palpation, no nothing, no no screen, like nothing. Mm-hmm. And then <laughs> the third doctor I went to in a week, he was a person of color. And he was the only one that said to me, if you think something's wrong, let's get you a scan. Mm-hmm. And if, you know, if something's wrong, then we'll deal with it. And if it's not, then, you know, great. So he did the scan for me and I had a large fibroid that was pushing on all of my organs. Wow. That was giving me all types of problems. I had to have surgery a month later. Right. So is that one of the problems? Is that one of the problems in the healthcare system is that like when women of color say something, they're not taken seriously or like at face value? Is that one of the challenges? They're not listened to. Yeah. They're not listened to. And when we talk about we talk about when there could be just explicit bias, like racism at play, right? Where there's just like, I'm not listening to you because I don't like black people or whatever. But then there's a lot of that implicit bias where there's been studies that show that when women in general don't get listened to as much, but when you take it down to now being a black woman or a black birthing person, you're clearly, you're not going to be listened to as much by any means. Mm -hmm. So people that were complaining of having the same complaints, White people were getting more of a, you know, workup and medicine and these other um, interventions where Black people were just being sent home. Mm. And I and I experienced that for myself. And that's when I was becoming a doula. I was working for, I was a volunteer doula, the Prison Birth Project. And it just like fueled my doula. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It fueled it because I was like, if I didn't know how to advocate for myself, yeah. if I didn't know that I'm, I could just keep going back to the doctor until someone gives me a scan, like I could have died. Mm. Mm-hmm. Right, and it's all because no one wanted to listen to me. Yeah, and even when we talk about things like um, 
I don't, you know, I'm not sure how Canada goes, but when we talk about things like preeclampsia, so preeclampsia affects Black people, Black birthing people more than anyone else. And so one of the things that they tell you is that if you're a Black birthing person and you're, like, if you're Black and you're pregnant, you're already at high risk for preeclampsia. Okay. But when you think about it, there's no difference between a Black body and a white body and a purple body, right? Mm. So we have to think about that the issue is really the system around the Black birthing person and not the Black birthing person. That's so right, interesting because so, I've seen statistics like, you know, mm-hmm. black women are more likely to or like less likely to have these and these interventions are more likely to whatever. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. OK, like, is that because of some sort of like hereditary genetic whatever that that no. these things are happening? <laughs> no, that's it is not. Crazy. There's nothing. Yeah, it's because of the system that's around Black birthing people. So in my nonprofit for the village and even in my, my, my like regular practice, I see a lot of times where people have maybe shown signs of high blood pressure or shown signs of different, you know, um, things going on. And people are just like, oh, no, it's okay. Oh, your blood pressure is just high because you were walking. Oh, your blood pressure is just high because of whatever. And then we get into the actual hospital system and now they're ready to induce them or give them a C-section. Mm. And, I, and my client's like, but I was telling you, right, that I was having headaches. I was telling you that I was concerned about my blood pressure reading. I was telling you all this stuff and you kept telling me that it was okay. Mm. And now I'm in a hospital because I'm getting a C-section. Mm-hmm. So I see it a lot, especially in my nonprofit, because my nonprofit, we specifically focus on low income and marginalized people. Yeah. So, so we see a lot of things that are happening. And I'm like, you know, these people are, you know, the black person person or the brown person is telling you what's going on with them and they're not being listened to until it's too late. Yeah. Yeah. That's. And that's when advocacy comes into play because I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. Right, right. (laughs) We're going to get this done. We're going to get this work up. You're going to ask for this blood, you know, this, these labs, you're going to do these things because I don't want you to die. Yeah. And that's what I literally have to worry about is like, I don't want you to die. And what I'm saying is not an exaggeration. Mm. This is facts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, that's real life for us. Yeah. And like, and in that experience, like you are in it every day too with these women, right? Like mm-hmm. you are seeing it every single day and like, all the time. yeah. And like, yeah. And I'm not, I'm just, yeah. And so... I've, I've seen all different types of things. I've seen one of my, one of my, our clients from our nonprofit, she was having a V back after two C-sections yeah. and her labor was going just fine. Everything was going great. And the whole time they were telling her that she was going to kill her baby what literally telling her you're going to kill your baby and she had to tell them like i've done my research i know because you know she's she was um she was a black person i guess she's what people would consider like urban so they were you know thinking that she wasn't educated mm. and she had to kept like she had to tell them the facts <laughs> like i've done my research i know this and the whole time that she was laboring which was successful her baby is healthy they were telling her you're going to kill your baby and I'm like, yeah. I've never seen that kind of treatment with any of my white clients ever. Yeah. 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 Can you imagine being a labor and someone's telling you that you're going to kill your baby? No. Over and over? No. Like my, like I had midwives and one of the midwives said something. Oh, like, like how, how big the babies have. Or something. I don't even know. Something that could have like psyched mm-hmm. me out. And my husband was like, I don't think she needs to be hearing that right now. Like she's laboring. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. her, like, <laughs> such a, like, no, like shut this conversation down, you know? So like, I, yes. I can't even, I can't even imagine. Um, so 
what I really want to bring it back around to as we think about wrapping up here is like that this, yes, for all my white friends out there, hard conversations to have in terms of having to, it's like putting a mirror up in front of your face, you know, and kind of thinking about these like implicit biases or these, these, you know, unintentional things that might come out in our behavior and our um, practices or whatever it is. And Mm -hmm. that sitting there and acknowledging and doing the work is important. And it doesn't mean that you're a bad person and it doesn't mean that you're racist and it doesn't mean that you hate people of color to sit there with yourself and feel uncomfortable and kind of own it for a minute and then kind of figure out where to go from here, you know, because understanding these biases for ourselves, having friends, diversifying your friend group, doing the education, doing the research, watching the documentaries, like whatever it is that we have to do so that we can kind of wrap our brains around this real significant challenge for people of color every single day. It's, it's our work and it's our duty to do that, especially, especially, especially as practitioners who are in a position Mm -hmm. of authority, right? So if nothing else kind of practical, like all this information and everything obviously is planting seeds and is, and is amazing. But if you take nothing else out of today, like walk out of here and, 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 do the work, face yourself a little bit, you know, and it's not to beat yourself up and it's not to be in shame and it's not to feel guilty and to, you know, like beat yourself up. Like this isn't meant to make anyone feel shameful. This is really because we want to serve moms and, you know, these babies, these precious little babies that are coming into the world and we want to help them in the best way we can be healthy and take care of themselves and, you know, support one another. Yeah. And if you, if you just want everyone to have a happy and healthy life and to have the proper resources and to live a good existence, this is part of that. Yeah. And I feel like at the, at the core of everyone, there's, you know, good. I do think that, you know, and I just think that in order for us to really push forward on making life a great experience for most people, for all people, we have to be aware of our own privileges, our own advantages, how that affects the world that we live in, yeah. how it affects the people that we take care of, and put that into place to make make sure that your privilege is used for the best, you know, for the good yeah. of all people. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree with that. Sabia, thank you so much for taking your time to be here with us today. I have so enjoyed talking with you. I appreciate your advocacy. I appreciate the work that you're doing. And I I appreciate you. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm going to go to your Instagram and look at your gorgeous Oh, kids. thank you. Because I want to see if you're really being biased or not. <laughs> but I feel like they're actually probably they're gorgeous. They're probably the cutest. Yeah, they are. Thank yeah. you so much. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even begin to tell you how happy and honored I am that you choose to spend your time here with me each week. If you're looking for the resources and things that were discussed in today's show, you can find them in the show notes, which is linked in the episode description. Or you can head directly to happyasamother.co slash podcast and find all of the show notes there. 
If you're looking for support and connection with other moms, you can head over to facebook.com slash groups slash happy as a mother and join our Facebook community. This community is filled with women just like you and I who want to support and uplift one another through our postpartum journey. And until next episode, Mama, I want you to know, keep showing up. You're doing a great job. Settling is not an option. Everything I desire is already mine. What if you can have it all? Because every day is for the girls. Hello, hello. Welcome to For the Girls podcast, hosted by Victoria Alario, For the Girls Who Want More. Listening to For the Girls will have you ready to raise the bar, stop settling for the bare minimum, and start believing you can have it all, and step into the 2.0 version of you. You can catch a new episode of For the Girls every Monday across all podcast platforms. Until next time, girls.